The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, uh, we have three guests on the show today. My first guest is the author of A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship, Dr. Lori B. Minsk. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. So apparently, Lori, uh, can I call you Lori? Oh, please. All right. You're taking your own advice, I guess. This is something that's very personal to you. This is not just a treatise for women and how to reclaim their sex drive and all that, but this is an experience that's happened to you as well, as I understand it. And now, having read the book and doing all the stuff that you say in the book, you have a great, satisfying sexual relationship with your husband of 22 years. So that's to me, what makes you the expert? Yes, that's so true. I, after, as is so common for women, after the birth of my children, my sex drive went into complete and total hibernation. And I thought, I don't care if I never have sex again, except for the fact I know how important it is to a relationship and I miss that part of my life. And so, luckily, as a psychologist, I had access to all the resources and basically found none of them worked and put together my own um, treatment program, recovered my sex drive, and then started receiving referrals from women in my town and started specializing in helping women get their desire back and eventually wrote the treatment program into this book. And your treatment program, Lauren, it, obviously it's different than everybody else's because you said you looked in, you're a psychologist, you were you know, suffering from a lack of libido, having a baby. I mean, I had th- I have three boys who were grown up, and I identify with that. I think it happens to most women. You start focusing on your children, and you really don't have a lot of energy or time left over for your partner, your spouse. But uh, okay, so you developed a whole new program. Do we call it a program for getting back your li- your libido, bringing the passion back into your life? Yes, I'd call it a program, and there's six steps to it. And what I really found was all the other programs out there, treatments out there, really only focused on sex. And it, they didn't really get to the root of the problem, which is exactly what you're talking about, not enough self-care, too much focus on others, um, and busy, busy, stressful lives. And so... My treatment program talk addresses both sex and the root of the problem, the exhaustion and attitudes around sex. And I call my program Five T's and a Bit of Spice. <laughs> Five T's and a Bit of Spice, and this plan includes thought, talk, time, touch, and tryst. Let's start with some of those. Okay, what about the thoughts? Okay, the thoughts is the first step, and I talk about that you're – 
uh, most important sex organ is between your ears. And I told a client that once, and she said, oh, I saw all these years I've been looking in the wrong place. <laughs> Um, but really the brain is so important and that first step thoughts, um, the research is very clear. Women just stop thinking about sex. And so the thought step instructs women to start thinking about sex on a daily basis. And also the research is very clear that women are much more distracted during sex than men. You know, so many women talk about, you know, thinking about their to-do list and whatnot during sex. And so the other part of the thought step is learning the principles of shutting off your busy brain when you are having sex. All right. Let's talk about that one because I think that is key, shutting, especially today, especially with women who are multitasking. Not only are they, you know, we've got to get sex in, we've got to take care of the kids, I've got to go to, you know, my, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I've got my husband. How do you do that? How do you stop thinking, shutting off your thoughts so that you can be in the moment, enjoy it? Exactly. The, the key to that is the principle of mindfulness, which is, and it also helps women who are self-conscious about their bodies, um, which is another very common cause of low sexual desire. But basically mindfulness is when you just focus completely and immerse yourself completely and totally in the moment. It's a very hard state to achieve, but it can be achieved in any activity. And I tell women, practice it during the day. Any um, any activity can be a mindful activity. If you're washing the dishes, immerse yourself, focus fully on the feelings of the suds. And the more you're able to do that in your daily life, the more you're going to be able to do it during sex and just shut the brain off, focus on your body sensations very intently. And some women have signals for themselves to to get them back to that mindful state, whether it's breathing their partner's scent or I have one client who tells herself, breathe into your genitals. But whatever you can do to get yourself fully immersed in the physical sensations will turn off your brain. That is such an innovative idea because I think one of the things, and obviously you know this, but if you start just focusing on something that does, sex can be toxic. It has all kinds of things, like you say, associated with it, embarrassed about your body, not enough time to do it. But if you're doing this mindfulness on something that's just doing the dishes or going to the gro- buying something at the grocery store or whatever it is, um, it's just training your mind to, in, in a way that you don't get distracted so that in a more which passionate I don't want to use the word toxic, but maybe a difficult situation, um, you're able to do it automatically, spontaneously? That's precisely right. The more practiced you are at just focusing on the physical sensations and the smells and the sounds and just immersing yourself, you know, taking a walk, doing the dishes, talking on the phone, whatever you're doing, the more quickly you'll be able to get into that state during sex and not think about the laundry or the to-do list. So simple. All right, now the next one is talk. Um, How do we incorporate talk into bringing back our libido? Well, you know, this one is so important. I call it the um, that communication is the bedrock to make your bedrock. And basically, it starts with general communication that so many times we don't talk about sex, we don't state our needs, 
and the practicing some pretty simple techniques of stating your needs outside the bedroom and inside the bedroom. One very simple technique is to try to start sentences with I and to not ask questions that are not questions. We all do this, like, would you want to go out to dinner tonight instead of I want to go out to dinner tonight? And then you know, building up from there in the general realm to be able to talk about sex. And I have some specific ideas in in the book. And one thing I talk about that's very important is what I call kitchen table sex talks. If you're going to sit down and have a serious talk about sex, do it at the kitchen table, not in the bedroom, and start to incorporate that in um, one's life. And I also have some more erotic talking suggestions for people who are interested in that. It sounds so simple, Lori, and yet so many people don't, I mean, they do have to buy your book because so many people, for whatever reason, we don't do that. I mean, these are really simple, easy techniques, it, I mean, and it just takes a few minutes out of your day to do these things, and uh, the rewards are obviously, I mean, are uh, it really pays off, right? Yes, and they are simple, but they're things that we forget to do when we're busy or we're never trained to do. And, and the techniques really do work. I actually ran a study on the book with women who read the book compared to women who didn't. And women who read the book, their sex drive increased by 60%. And they're very simple techniques that don't take a lot of time. Now, what's the partner's? What are, what's your part as a woman? What's your partner's role in all of this? Let's say you are doing this. You bought the book, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and we are talking to Lori Mintz, Ph.D. Uh, uh, this is her book. Uh, where do the men fit into this? That's a fabulous question. They come in right at the step we're talking about, the talk step. At the end of that chapter, I encourage the women to sit down and have a talk with their husband and bring them on board, and I even give scripts and suggestions, and then from there on in, they're included by the women who are reading the book, sitting down and talking to them, telling what they've read, and asking them to engage in certain activities together. Yeah, because men and women come, don't you think, from a very different place when it comes to sex or sexuality? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, so ha- that's that communication part. Your partner's not going to know what you want unless you tell them. The next one. All right, we have time, touch, and tryst. The time. What are we talking about in this context about time? We're talking about self-care, spending even just a minute on yourself a day, hopefully more if you have the time, but some women don't. But doing things to take care of yourself, learning that self-care is not selfish. It's a necessary uh part of life, I really encourage exercise because it both decreases stress and enhances libido. And then I also talk in that chapter about spending time with your spouse, non-sexual connected time and time organizing the tasks of life together. When you talk about time, and I had this argument with a friend of mine the other day, uh, taking time for yourself, improving yourself, you know, mind, body, exercise. Uh, Do you think it's the responsibility of, uh, and this I have a an acquaintance, let's say. She's not a close friend, but, I mean, she's put on an enormous amount of weight. I mean, 100, you know, obese. Um, isn't it her responsibility to do something about that? If you want to have a, I mean, in the context of, of having a, a passionate sex life, um, it, it's not just getting your, your mind uh, in order, but don't you also have to keep it, it, your body in order as well? Isn't that part of the responsibility for a woman? 
I, I completely agree. And for a man, and it, the hardest thing to talk about with couples is lost attraction because the person who's no longer attracted says, oh, my gosh, I feel so superficial because she gained 100 pounds and I'm not attracted to her anymore. And it's really realizing, you know what, attraction is a part of sexuality and feeling good about one's body and being able to move it is part of sexuality. And taking care of oneself is says, I care about myself. I care about my sex life. I care about my children. It's it's core and it's central. Well, that was part of my argument. So, of course, the minute I finish the show, I'm going to call my friend up. But I, I uh, the next one is, I mean, we touch and tryst. Touch is basically, the, the, my quote from that that's most favorite is a woman in the book who's 80 who I talk to a lot who had a great sex life and she says you can't go from being an ice cube to being, to boiling water. You need touch to warm you up. So many times in our busy lives we don't, we stop touching affectionately, we stop touching provocatively as we used to and then just say hey let's hop in bed and have sex and that doesn't work. And so touch is about incorporating those kind of touches throughout the day. And there's also some information in there about just how long it takes for a tired woman to get into the moment. Um, and tr- how long does it take? <laughs> Eleven minutes on average, but at least sometimes up to twenty. Um, whereas it takes the average man four minutes. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> I told a client that once, and she she went home and she's demand. She said to her husband, "I want my eleven minutes." <laughs> and their sex life did improve because she was able to relax and understand that she was going to take more time being yeah. touched and warming up. Yeah, and I, I think that's important. It's important for men to know that as well about the touch thing and the time it takes for women to 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 warm up to get turned on because some men feel that women uh, are not responding to them, and then they feel bad about it, or they think they're doing something wrong, and they're not. It's just the difference between the men and men and women. Absolutely, and there's another myth in there that I just really like to talk about, if I can, for just a second. I There is still a huge myth out there that, um, orgas- that women should have orgasms during intercourse, and 70% of women don't. And once men and women understand that, and I talk a lot about this in my book, their sex lives can increase and satisfaction can increase enormously. 70%? That's a high statistic. 70% of women who have sex do not have orgasms? Not during intercourse. They need direct clitoral stimulation, either during, before, after. Um, but the myth out there that women should intercourse, have uh, orgasms during intercourse is contributes to a lot of sexual dissatisfaction. Interesting. All right, we have to say goodbye. I mean, I could. Uh, I have a lot more questions for you, but uh, I want to make sure that we, uh, our readers know that they can obviously purchase the book online, bookstores everywhere. And I'm talking to Dr. Laura Mintz. She's author of A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. And you can go to her website, Dr. Laura Mintz, and we're spelling Mintz, M-I-N-T-Z, dot com. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on. It was great to have you on. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Outside the party. 
money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. And uh, my second guest this morning, and by the way, everyone, welcome to the show, is Dita M. Oliker, Ph.D., She's author of Hide and Seek, Early Adaptations, Reclaiming Childhood's Lost Potential, Um, Relationships, Happiness, Weight Loss, Stress, Depression, Anxiety, Perfectionism, or Self-Defeating Behaviors. Dr. Dita Oliker uses a simple Darwinian system to clarify these complex psychological phenomenon, uh, bringing her experience in the theater and as a psychologist. Uh, she demonstrates the drama embedded in the demands of our childhood. We're going to find out what that means. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Oliker. Thank you for having me. How are you this morning? Oh, just fine. I hope you're not too hot. I don't know where you are, but... Uh... No, I'm on the um, West Coast, and it's uh, very cloudy. Good. Well, good. <laughs> Enjoy the clouds. I'm on yeah, the East Coast, the and it's today. not. Um, all right, so, Dr. Oliker, hide and seek. Um, you talk about in the book self-sabotaging behaviors, things that we do to sabotage our, pay- our behaviors so that we're not successful, we don't accomplish what we want, but all of this comes from past stuff that we're not necessarily aware of, family dynamics that get in the way of our accomplishing what we want to do as adults. Uh, that's correct. And one of the important things that I always stress is that I don't believe that we work on the basis of bad guys. 
um, parents and people who take care of children are not necessarily bad guys, but they believe on what they need to do in order to have survived when they were children in the world they were growing up, and they pass that on to their children so that someone who lives in a very scary world where you need to hide most of the time will pass that kind of belief system on to their child. And it's that kind of behavior that doesn't belong to where the child now lives that we look at and say, ask a very, very simple question. And it really is a simple question. Would there be, for some unknown reason, a need not to get what you want? So that if I want to be, uh, let's say I'm a man and I want to be very, very successful and I have the capacity to be successful, but every time I'm uh, um, up, you know, where I'm going to be uh, evaluated, I blow it. I miss meetings. I forget my computer. I I make mistakes that are stupid and, and, and shouldn't have been making. And you start to say, well, would there be some reason why you need not to? And let's say his father uh, and his family came from uh, a world in which it was not safe to be successful. And there are places in the world that are like that. That message is going to be passed down to that man when he was a child. You know, the, the perfect example that I think about, and maybe, uh, you know, being on the East Coast, I'm not sure that everyone knows that, but Elliot Spitzer, who was the governor of New York State, um, yeah. and who had been the attorney general, and this was, what, now almost three years, I guess, two years ago, suddenly starts going out with prostitutes and then loses his governorship. Is that an example? I mean, he's kind of reached the pinnacle of success of his career and then does something like that? Uh, one would wonder about that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's um, the kind of self-sabotaging behavior you'd have to explore in your... Isn't that what you're talking about? Yes. I don't know specifically for him because I don't know what messages he got. But, yes, um, let's say the young, the, the young woman who is uh, really meant to be a... a uh, a mother who wants children, who wants a marriage, and the message from childhood was that you're the designated caretaker of this family, and as the folks get older, you're supposed to be there for them. I had a case where um, a young man, he was, uh, the parents had divorced. He was nine at the time, two younger sisters. The father comes to him and says, Son, um, I've taken a job up north, meaning Northern California, Mom and the girls are now your responsibility. And he took that literally, because children think concretely. He took that in, and he literally felt married to the family. And it was years before he could really break free and have a family of his own. So that, I mean, that's self-sabotage. Sabotaging behavior, and another name for that, we want to call it self-destructive behavior. And you have to take a look at that. You know, how does that fit into your well, pattern of behavior where you're not getting where you want? Exactly. Um, that's a good and, example. And you, right, another you thing, want that it. Do, yeah, go ahead. I mean, that you really want it. You have the capacity to get it, and um, so often people who are caught in those patterns are seen as either lazy or um, difficult or they really don't want it, 
or they're neurotic. Or, or they're some, just a failure. I mean, people will say, well, he's, everything he tries or everything she tries, she fails at. Right, exactly. Um, we, we have that out here with the uh, ads that are going on Jerry Brown. See, if we're talking politics. <laughs> and so everything he's done is a failure you know, uh, <laughs> to get the same results. You know, we, we, we mustn't elect him. So, yeah, I mean, um, but in general, when we look at certain um, types of sabotaging, it raises the question, is there something behind it? And um, asking that simple question actually uh, does start to get people thinking. Yeah, but I think that's one of the main questions. I mean, you have several, you have many that you discuss in the book, and we have time for maybe only two at this point, but because here's another one. Um, and boy, there are a lot of people, I think particularly women who do, the, who do this, uh, people who consistently put the needs of others before their own needs. You know, you don't, be, as you describe, you don't belong to yourself. It's all, you know, you take yeah. care of Mm-hmm. This is self-sabotaging behavior. It's a behavior that doesn't allow you to reach your potential. But it kind of goes under the guise that you're just like this really good person and you're helping your children and you're helping your partner and you're helping your old parents, uh, but really doesn't get you anywhere if you can't help your, take care of yourself. Exactly, exactly. And it comes very, very often from a message that you're not important, let's say. Let's let's say um, you're the, the the sixth girl and and finally a boy is born or something like that, and you're really not that important anymore. And the child discovers, let's say, that by taking care of everybody else, um, she gets to be important. She gets she develops what I call a need to be needed, and that runs her life. And it's always meeting the needs of the other. And her need is to do that in order to feel a part of the family, in order to feel important. And it feeds on itself. Or let's say you have a narcissistic uh, parent who has, it has to always be about them. And if it's not about them, you stand a very, very serious chance of getting into trouble. And so you learn very, very early to put your needs aside to meet the needs of what will allow you to survive in that family. So, Dr. Oliker, how do you get out of that one? That's a tough one, isn't that? I mean, when you first you have to be aware that you're doing it, obviously, but once you are aware, what are just talk to us like some of the small steps that one can do to break away from that, to be able to take a look at yourself and say, hey, I'm important, what I do is important, and who I am um, is important. Um, Yes. What, yeah, what is the first step? Well, I like to use the magic wand, and, and I say, okay, abracadabra, you, you, get, you now get what you want, and you got it when you were a kid as well. What would happen? What would the dynamics be? I use uh, how people use language. Like, does someone know the difference between being selfish and taking care of themselves? Do they know the difference between feeling good about themselves and being narcissistic, let's say. Um, And very, very often these words come up and they are clues to what are the dynamics in, in the way that you think about yourself. 
you start to, in little ways, start meeting your needs and start to see how people respond to you, um, particularly when you feel that the need that you're expressing is absolutely legitimate. And so people are so used to you doing things for them and you're never thinking of yourself that there's very, very often a reaction, and you start to note those reactions. And how can we do it? And you have we we have just a few minutes left, but and we have I have a whole list of of things <laughs> I wanted to ask you. But um, how can we? Let's say as adults, we see that or we have a sense that things are not you know we aren't achieving what we want to do. Do most people wait until a crisis occurs, or can we? Are there things that we can do to kind of help ourselves before become you know before your husband leaves you or? Uh, you're estranged from your children, or before there's some kind of a major crisis that, say, brings you into a, a therapeutic situation. Yes, because I think when you start to recognize that underneath your life there's an, an, an unease, something isn't working right, you're not feeling good, or you're in, the, you and your husband are going at each other more than, than is, is healthy for the relationship, and you start to say, what what is going on? What's What's happening? Um, if we have two seconds more, let me uh, talk about nuclear reactions. When when they uh, they set off the atomic bomb, nuclear reaction was a new word. And what they did is they filled a small room with mousetraps holding ping pong balls as a way of explaining what a nuclear reaction is. And I use that metaphor for couples because each person has a ping pong ball holding being held by a mousetrap. One of them throws one ball in, and after that, it's all reaction. And if you start to recognize that and start to deal with what's going on, that we land up so quickly in an explosion, you start to uncover some of the ping-pong balls. That, that's a great metaphor. Um, and it really works. And, yeah. And so yeah. in the dynamic, you see, once one, it doesn't... And both participate. And the moment you say ping pong or, or nuclear reaction, it stops because you're, you get sensitized to how you're getting caught in those nuclear reactions that really go back to the damage, the hurt, the feelings that are buried so deep inside. All right. So we have to, I mean, we just have to, I think it's our responsibility whether we are by ourselves taking care of a family or in a relationship, just to, to be self-aware. I mean, which, yes. if we get your book, we should be able to do that. Um, hide and Seek, Early Adaptations, Reclaiming Childhood's Lost Potential. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you this morning. Well, it's been very, very nice talking to you. Great. So, And then we'll go online your, and your uh, website because we want uh, listeners uh, yes, to go to... Yes, DinaOlicaPhD.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. I'm Catherine Doctor, social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. It's the Catherine Zopp Show. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. We have uh, our next guest coming up. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there. If your pets could talk, they'd tell you to tune in to Pet Shop Talk. Join internationally recognized animal massage therapist Lola Jean Michelin every week for a show that covers everything from nutrition, health care, and training for your pet or animal. Lola and her guest experts will bring you the latest trends in the pet care industry. And even if you're not a pet owner, you'll find out why pets do the crazy things they do. Tune in each Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, my next guest is Bonnie McEnany. She's author of Messages, Signs, Visits, and Premonitions from Loved Ones Lost on 9-11. Bonnie McEnany was the wife of a 9-11 victim. Messages is a collection of inspiring true stories about the spiritual experiences of those who lost loved ones on September 11, 2001. And the book has been described as a moving and fascinating look at the unexplained messages offers comfort, hope, and understanding to all who were touched by the tragic events of that terrible day. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Bonnie. Thank you so much. So your husband, Eamon, died in 2011, and um, everything changed for you, obviously, on that day. So um, let's talk about the book Messages. This wasn't the first book that you wrote after he died. Well, the, the first um, was really a compilation of his poetry, Bend, Abandon the Road, uh, which I put together and, and Cornell uh, published it. And um, that book was particularly interesting because uh, a number of Eamon's premonitions were threaded through his poems. And uh, just a little background, um, Eamon was in uh, the North Tower on the 105th floor, he had worked for Cantor Fitzgerald for 10 years. And uh, September 2nd, we had a family gathering um, for Labor Day, and he began a conversation about terrorists hitting the building and should he take people to the roof this time or bring them down the stairs because he had been in 93. Um, and every other day leading up to September 11th, he became increasingly despondent, talking about the imminence of his death and his mortality and and, um, you know, that's how this whole thing began. What, what was your response? I mean, it, I mean when, when he was 
during this period, the, the you know the few days before nine eleven, um, and you said he became increasingly despondent. Did you listen? To, I mean, did you think that there was any truth to it, or you know what was your reaction? I guess to his um, yeah, and, you um, know, essentially, I just began at first. I sort of ignored it because I thought he was just being you know ridiculous but then as the days uh went on i began began to be concerned that perhaps he was falling into some sort of clinical depression and on uh, september 9th which was our last major exchange um we were watching uh the band of brothers miniseries it was a premiere episode and it was when the paratroopers from company e were diving out of the planes down into normandy in 1944 and um Eamon made the comment that they must have been so frightened because so many were only 17 years old. I want you to know I'm prepared for my death and I can handle it now. Um, and after he made that comment, I was very upset because I thought something was seriously wrong with him. Not, It never occurred to me that he was having um, premonitions that entire week. Did he have a pre- premonition about the exact day? I mean, like the morning of, of September 11th, was there something that he said or something that um, that was different on that day or on that morning when he went to work? Yes. Um, that morning uh, he got up for his normal routine, which he, he woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning because it was a two-hour commute one way to the trade center from our home. And I worked as well. I, I um my commute was 45 minutes, so we had this routine like everybody does and had kids that had to get to school, etc. He woke up, and he got in the shower. I heard the shower running, and all of a sudden, I heard him turn it off, and he made the comment, oh, my God, I have the whirlies. Now, what that meant was um, a number of years before he had developed a vertigo problem, uh, people know it as Meniere's disease, and he had not had an attack for over nine months. And the morning of September 11th, he had an attack in the shower, and he came out, and he sort of steadied himself, and um, it was as if he was having that, am I a man or a mouse argument with himself, and he decided, no, I can go in, because I said, well, just don't go in, just stay home and rest, and and he said, no, I, I'll go in. So was that divine intervention? Was that one more opportunity for him to maybe change the course of his future? I don't know. I mean, do you ever wonder, Bonnie, when you bring up that question, Bonnie, do you ever think about why he did go in. I mean, yeah, let's say that was one more divine. This is a chance, you know, we're sending the, the lifeboat, and he chose not to do that. Um, yes. Um, you know what? He, uh, Eamon is a, in the U.S. Hall of Fame of the sport of lacrosse, and he was an All-American in football, and he, he had um, sort of an allegiance to teams, and he had worked for a decade with a number of the guys up on the 105th floor with him, and he truly loved them. They had a, a, a sense of brotherhood. They looked out for one another. And I think um, in many respects, I've debated this question in my mind, if Eamon had stayed home and all the rest of those guys had died, I don't know if he could have coped with that because he was incredibly altruistic, would have given you the shirt off his back, was not material. And, um, you know, I mean, in a way... It's one of the elements that gives me a sense of comfort and for the wives of some of the other men that, you know, they were all... That he had such a connection that, I mean, he, he almost had to go. He had to be with them. He had to be with them, yeah. And um, after that, uh, you know, the first first 
for this book, I interviewed close to 200 people, the majority of whom were associated with the loss on September 11th, and some weren't, because this phenomenon, of course, is not unique to 9-11. It's just that a lot of people died. Um, many, many people had this sense of foreboding uh, prior to the event. And then now, when you're talking about many people, does that include, are you talking about those who died in the event or even those who were um, their partners or their loved ones? Um, a little of both, but mainly from my sample, uh, people that, that died. They were restless. Some were taking out life insurance, including my own husband. He took life insurance out that summer. Um, they were just moody and not themselves. And, you know, then we, we passed through the event. Um, that's a whole other set of, you know, scenarios. If you ever uh, have read about Carl Jung and his theory of synchronicity, and it's um, that's one phenomenon. But then passing over 9/11, um, the number of spiritual sp- experiences that people had that imply that a personal loss is not really a permanent event, an event that death is not really a permanent event, that if you love someone, the relationship continues. It's just different even after they pass. Um, that belief, I think, was instilled in many because of the experiences they've, they've had, including my own. And I had three significant ones and then some other smaller ones. Other people have had, you know, you name it, um, m- many, many different types of things happen to them that have given them hope, given them faith that there's still a connection. And the majority of the book is about that. Well, let's talk about the connection and your connection, your connection to Eamon after mm-hmm. the event and, and maybe a couple of some of the others' stories. Because, you know, there are going to be people, obviously, who are going to be skeptical and say, you know, not believing you or, or not believing the stories. And we do have to say that you, um, a mother, but a former business executive, uh, uh, you've been described as the rational one, skeptical of the spiritual world and all of, all of what it represents. So this has been a change for you as well. Yeah, um, I was skeptical of all of this. Um, you know, I'm pragmatic, and, um, you know, as humans, we tend to want answers for everything. And when we don't understand something, we either fear it or discount it or move on from it. And in this case... Um, yeah, I had been working for 21 years with the company I was with, and um, there was a point, it was around 2005, uh, that I just made a decision I had to do this full-time. I was trying to interview people and get stories at you know crazy hours of the day and night, and I realized it, it was just sort of a passion. Um, and you know what? The book is not about converting skeptics. Uh, you know, I tell people, read the stories and reflect and decide what you believe. You know, it's not about that, because um, sure, anyone could say a person is grieving and they're imagining things, and there's all sorts of arguments on the other side of the coin, but it's not the individual story as much as it is the power in the collective stories that continue. I mean, after the book came out, I mean, I'm getting stories every day, numerous stories from people all over the place, and each and every one is unique, and each and every one is, is wonderful, and the degree to which these experiences have helped people with their emotional healing and growth um, is the common denominator across all of them. Well, I want to start with, with your story first. Um, you know, at what point did you begin to feel or realize that you had that connection to Eamon after his death on 
on September 13th in the morning, um, we had been calling burn units and hospitals. We had numerous people at our home, just like many of the 9-11 families. We were all trying to get answers because we hadn't been told conclusively that our loved ones had died. We, We were classifying them as missing. And we were all doing everything we could to get leads. And I finally just, I had to get away from it. And I stepped out my front door very early in the morning. And it was one of those days that was warm, but there wasn't a, a breeze, a ripple of air. You know, and I stood there. And I don't know why, but I just yelled out, Eamon, please tell us where you are, you know. And I thought, this is absurd. Um, but within 15 seconds, I heard started to hear the rustling of leaves. And I looked up at the tree frames my driveway. I live in a country setting. And I saw the trees, the the leaves started to flip over and move and swirl and a wind was building. And I watched it as it kind of circled the tree and came around and undulated around other trees in my yard. I was wearing a skirt at the time and it whimsically just sort of lifted my skirt and let it drop and stopped. And I've never experienced anything like that in my life. And I knew that it was an answer to the question. It was related to Eamon in some way. I don't know what it was or or how it came about, but that's how I felt. And that was the beginning of um, maybe a heightened awareness of this kind of thing. Um, although as time went by, I became skeptical again and thought, well, maybe I was just imagining it or whatever um, until I had my next experience. And then I realized, no, this is more than... There's more going on here than... All right. This is the time we'll take a break, and then when mm-hmm. we come back, um, I want to talk to you, obviously, about the next experience. Bonnie McEnany, author of Messages, Signs, Visits, and Premonitions from Loved Ones Lost on 9-11. Don't go away, because Bonnie and I will be back in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Best Boomer Towns delivers the inside scoop on the best 21 places to relocate or retire in the U.S. Listen to columnists, town bloggers, and local residents as we highlight a town each week. Talk show host Nancy Shaka brings you the best and the brightest. As a baby boomer, you experienced Beatlemania, Woodstock, Vietnam, and the women's movement. Today, you're educated, health-minded, and thinking about where to spend your future. Tune in at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, to Best Boomer Towns every Thursday on the Voice America Variety Channel and start planning the best rest of your life. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. 
Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show, and I'm talking to Bonnie McEnany, author of Messages, Signs, Visits, and Premonitions from Loved Ones Lost on 9-11. And, and Bonnie, you and I were talking about, um, just before we took the break, your own experience, your personal experience, the first time that you had a spiritual experience, a connection with your husband, Eamon, who died on 9-11, um, but that, even when that happened, you kind of went back to, should I call it denial? Like maybe I didn't really have this experience. You really didn't connect to me, and some, so, you, and, and then another event occurred where you began to believe what was happening to you. Yeah, I think it was just disbelief. You know, you 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 want something so badly, um, just like we all did. We wanted to know that that our loved ones were either okay and we were going to locate them that would that would have been the, the best thing possible but then just to just to have an answer because it was all so sudden it was so violent and so many were killed and you know it wasn't um it, like in my case it wasn't just Eamon, my husband who died i knew many many people who had worked with him for for long years and their families and just it was just too the event itself was too unbelievable so then you start thinking well maybe what I thought was a spiritual experience was just an extension of just the magnitude of everything, you know. So what changed that? Well, I'll tell you. Um, many people um, still have not received remains of their loved one, and I thought I would be one of those um, because five months had passed, had heard nothing, and it was February in 2002. And um, where I live, it was extremely cold this particular day. It was snow on the ground, the ponds were frozen, wind was that biting wind that goes right through your clothing. And I'd uh, gone to a neighboring town to attend a small 9-11 family meeting, and while I was there, there was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and one of the heads of our police department and um, my pastor were standing at the door, and of course, whether you've already been through a trauma or not, when you see that and you know them, you're thinking, oh my God, what happened? And then vaguely, one of them said they found... Eamon's remains in New York, and it was just a surreal thing because, you know, I had my own view of what what had occurred, and I was able to achieve a balance with that view. So the pastor said, listen, I'll drive you home. Someone can get me at your house. And I said, fine. So we bundled up. I already described the weather, and we're driving along, and he took a right-hand turn, and I realized he was going into our local cemetery. And um, just a little background, when my father had a home in Florida... He, he sub- subsequently passed away, but there was a great blue heron that would parade around by the water's edge in front of his house. He was on the water, and every morning when he had breakfast, he'd look for the bird, and they formed sort of a friendship. 
And one Christmas, my husband and I bought him a, a glass replica of the heron, and so it was a point of connection between the three of us. So here we are in the cemetery, and I said to him, what are you doing? And he said, you know, you're going to have to start thinking about this now, about what you're going to do with the remains. And we're driving along, and all of a sudden, out of my peripheral vision, I see this huge shadow and an incredible wingspan, and this bird lands right in front of our car. And I realized it was a great blue heron, and in New England, in freezing temperatures, with ice and snow. Yes, they, they are sometimes around, but in a cemetery in front of my car at that moment. And I explained to the pastor the significance, and he said to me, you know what this means, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. Um, that was one of two sightings uh, over a course of a month. I came and went many, many times to try to get used to this idea of burying my husband and never saw the bird until the day I had to pick a location for him to be buried, and I had a girlfriend with me who knew Eamon quite well. And we were being shown areas of the cemetery, and nothing seemed right. You'd get out of the car, and you'd stand on the ground, and I don't know what you were supposed to feel, but it wasn't right. And the director pointed us the way of uh, the older part of the cemetery and said, go down there, and he said, there's this mound of, you know, hill, a little hilltop. You go there and see how that is. And so we drove down and went over and stood on that area, and it just felt different. And right at that minute, right you know, on the other side of this little thin driveway that separated the areas of the cemetery, the bird was there. And she saw it, and I saw it, and we didn't see it land. I don't know how we couldn't have seen it, but that was the only other time. And, of course, that's where he's buried. That's an amazing story. I mean, it really, it's um, one of those things that gives you goosebumps. I mean, did you, and, and, and then right after that, did you share that with people? I mean, did you have to process, I mean, how did that, I mean, the effect? I have to, you know, I have to be honest. Um, I did share it with people, and nobody questioned it. That people that I spoke to looked at it the way I looked at it. And I want to bring up an important point. I think many, many people have these spiritual experiences, and they're afraid to talk about them because they're afraid people will view them as, having a problem of some sort, you know, psychologically. And and um, I found in interviewing all the people that I did for the book with their stories, without exception, each one would say in their own words, I'm not crazy, this really happened. And I would say, I know you're not. And then they felt that they were in a safe environment to give me the details of what had occurred. Um, you know, people, I think people get find solace. Um, and... You know, even though I didn't have lots of things happen, um, the, the, the events that I had were powerful enough so that when I began to talk to others and they would talk about the signs or even the visitations they've had, it all seemed very normal to me. What about your own children? Did they experience any of those kinds of experiences or spiritual experiences or connections with Amen that you did? No, not to that level. My daughter had an experience um, with me at one point, which was would fall under signs. Um, I try to separate my children from this whole thing. I mean, they know what I'm doing, and and um, I think that they're comfortable with it. They know about the book, obviously. They've seen the book. One of them's reading it now. Um, because children are very fragile in some respects when they've been through a trauma, and even though the book is inspirational and it's meant for people to 
take the stories away and decide in their own mind, as I said earlier, what they want to believe, um, how it relates to their own life. I, I think um, there will be a time when it's more appropriate for them to experience it to a great extent, what's been written. Well, I want to, we have to say goodbye. This is a, obvious, I could keep talking to you, and I'm sure many of my listeners can keep listening to you, but I want them to know they messages, signs, visits, and premonitions from loved ones lost on 9-11, Bonnie McEnany. Um, do you have a website that we can go to? And uh, Yes, you... in fact, um, I do have a website, messagesbook.com, um, where people can download their own spiritual stories, which I'm collecting. But I have a Facebook page, which I'm using as an inspirational vehicle um, to provide updates on messages and what's happening, but also inspirational thoughts for the day. And that's facebook.com slash messagesbook. Terrific. Great. So we can get in touch with you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, thank you for yeah, having it me. It was a pleasure having you. Bonnie McEnany, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, voiceamericavariety.com, World Talk Radio. Hope you had a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.